0: Our scripture reading today is John 16, verses 25 to 33. And if you're reading along in the Pew Bibles, that's on page 903. So John 16, starting in verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the father on your behalf for the father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the father and have come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going to the father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you.
1: You ever watched Bob Ross paint one of those happy little trees on YouTube or Netflix? You guys know who Bob Ross is? He's a very famous painter. Look him up on Netflix. You'll be immediately intrigued and taken by him. He could paint the most chaotic storm on a canvas, but that voice is just so peaceful. The canvas is full of beautiful, stormy chaos even as you're carried along by the smooth, sultry sounds of Bob's voice. There's no more peaceful storm than the one that Bob Ross is painting and describing. I spent much of my growing up years uh, in Tampa Bay, in and around Tampa Bay, and I can recall many times being forced inside to watch a storm whip through the bay from my my grandmother's condo that was right on the bay. Through the rain-streaked windows, we'd watch the storm do its thing, creating these big old whitecaps, bending palm trees almost in half, blowing debris all around. All the lightning and the thunder and the wind made for a troubling experience for me as a kid in that condo. But there was at least one creature I can recall seeing in my mind's eye that was unbothered by these storms. Tampa has tons of pelicans. And pelicans aren't afraid of storms. They're content to just ride it out. Like, literally, they ride on the surface of the turbulent sea, climbing swells and then dropping into valleys without worry. Watching them ride the swells was almost a peaceful experience for me. And what was a troubling storm for me? They were experiencing peace. They had peace in trouble. But I wonder this morning, is your peace in trouble? Does peace seem ever elusive to you? Are you always just hoping against hope that the next season of your life will be the peaceful one? Once this issue resolves, life will get back to normal and stuff will be okay, we say. Once I get the raise, once my marriage is fixed, once the disease heals, once we get the house, once I get that promotion, once terrorism is destroyed and towers never fall again, Doesn't it just seem like the peace that we so often long for is just out of reach, dependent on a roll of the dice, or for the cards to fall just your way, or for the boss to look your way? But what if those things never happen? Then what? Is there a way for you to ride out your storms in peace? Is there a way to experience peace in trouble rather than for your peace to always be in trouble? Jesus says that there is. If you can recall from the last couple of weeks, we've been camped out poring over events that took place over only a few hours. Since John 13, Jesus and his disciples have been together on the same night. so we've been on the same night since John 13. We're at the end of 16 today. They've been talking about some major events that are just on the horizon. Jesus is just a few hours away from a midnight arrest and an eventual brutal execution. He knows this and he's prepping his guys for what to do in his absence. Well, two weeks ago, if you can recall, we talked about the present help Jesus sent to us to assist us in trials, the Holy Spirit. Last week, we dipped into the future hope Jesus has given us to sustain us in sorrow. And now this week, let's briefly look at the perfect peace that he offers us in trouble, in storms. In your life storm, you always have a present help, the Spirit a future hope forever with God, and a perfect peace to sustain you. We're going to unpack that perfect peace today. Is there really a way to ride out your storm? There is. There is joy and sorrow. There is peace and pain. And Jesus unpacks it today. How do we get it? How do we access this ever-elusive peace? Well, according to the disciples here in John 16 so far, they've been super unsure about the answer to this question they feel like jesus has been speaking in figures of speech Uh, you can see that in verse 25 and then an example of that in verse 21 we unpacked that picture of birth last week a little bit and jesus agrees to this Uh, he says in verse 25 it has been this way but look he's saying there's a change on the horizon it would seem that this change is coming soon because he says the hour is coming when something's going to change and now, when Jesus talks about an hour, he doesn't mean it's two o'clock now, but three o'clock is going to blow your mind. It's not like that. In John's gospel, the term hour is actually a theological term, rather more than a timestamp. The hour that he's talking about here is all about access. Jesus himself is bringing the Father's presence into the world and is now accessible to the world, to you and to me. And so there's something about this hour that will cause things to sort of click for the disciples. Thus far, they've been along for the ride with Jesus, but not really understanding who Jesus is and what to do with him, ultimately speaking. But Jesus is referring to something right here in our text today that's going to happen in their future that will transform their understanding. Not only that, but their experience of trials will transform too. If you can cheat down to verse 33, Jesus says, Look, I've told you these things so that you may have peace even in the face of tribulation. So, when this hour comes, what is what is it that Jesus is referring to here that is going to give them direct access to the Father? In verse 27, what's going to happen that's going to free up Jesus to leave the world because his work is done? Verse 28, what's going to happen that's going to scatter the very guys he's talking to right now? Verse 32, what's going to happen that's going to leave Jesus all alone humanly speaking? 32, grant the disciples peace and tribulation, verse 33, and allow Jesus to be able to say, I have overcome the world. What is is the thing that he's talking about? What is the linchpin that holds all of these facts together? And especially for our purposes this morning, what is it that allows Jesus to be able to say, look, I have overcome the world. And because of that, you can rest even in your trouble. You can be that, like that pelican who just rolls with the waves. What is it that ties all of these things together? Well, Jesus hinted at it last week in Figures of Speech, in, this, in the text from last week, and he's hinting at it again here. It's the death, resurrection, and ultimately glorification of Jesus. And again here in John 16, the, the disciples are not sure with what to do with Jesus. And the rest of the gospel writers agree with this too. They seem to suggest that none of the disciples made much sense of the cross until after the resurrection. I shouldn't say the cross. They they didn't make much sense of Jesus, period, until after the resurrection, until that hour that Jesus is speaking of here in verse 25. Now, I'm not sure. There's a lot of us in here this morning. I'm not sure where you are in your journey with Jesus this morning. But I can guarantee you that you will not make any sense of this book, any sense of the Jesus way, any sense of the urgency of the Christian message or the importance of following Jesus, even if it puts you in an awkward position with friends or family or coworkers or whatever, you won't have any compulsion to do any of these things until after you make sense of the resurrection, until after you land on one side or the other and hopefully plant your roots deeply into the victorious soil of the resurrection. For the disciples, and really for all of history, the hinge point was the resurrection. All of history and all of the future, all of your future, pivots on whether or not the resurrection really happened. If it happened, then Jesus truly is God. He has rights over his creation, and he is worthy of your obedience and worship, because he beat death. But, if it didn't happen... We owe Jesus nothing. The Bible unravels and becomes meaningless, and we're left to wonder what we're even here on this earth for. What are we here to do? Where do we come from? And further, if the resurrection didn't happen, there's no hope for your peace and trouble because there's no one who can claim ultimate victory over pain and over death. And so we're left to succumb to that pain and death whenever it rears its ugly head in our lives. I think if we're honest with ourselves though, this morning, the resurrection is sometimes a challenging claim to believe. There are so many who have been very critical of the Bible because of its resurrection claims. Take, for instance, uh, the late skeptic Christopher Hitchens. He once once asked an audience to imagine striking up a conversation with someone on a bus, a stranger on a bus, who nonchalantly remarks, you know, I used to be a dead person, but I'm alive now. Hitchens then quips that the most reasonable response to a claim like that would not be belief, but relocation to another seat on the bus. And who could blame them? I suppose if I heard this claim on a bus, I wouldn't believe the claim either, not even a little. So why should we believe John's claim? Well, then there are those who are a little bit less flagrant about their opposition to Jesus. Uh, And they Yet, yet they still find credibility of an empty tomb too difficult of a pill to swallow. I had a neighbor like this recently. I discussed the real bodily resurrection of Jesus with him. And he thinks of himself as a religious guy, and probably even considers himself a Christian. He likes Jesus, at least, at least he thinks he does. But he believes the resurrection to be a spiritual reality, just a mere symbol of Jesus' ongoing sort of influence in the world not a bodily, physical, historical, rock-solid reality. The actual physical empty tomb is take it or leave it for him. What's important about the empty tomb, he says, is the spiritual significance that you take from it. Whether it's true or not, meh, it doesn't really matter. And he's dead wrong about that. One of the New Testament writers, Paul, says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And so I think the subtle point that John is making here, really that Jesus is making, is that the resurrection is a historical reality and that faith isn't futile in him. The hour here in verse 25 actually did happen physically and not just spiritually. And I'd like to give you a a few quick reasons to consider that the resurrection was an actual historical event and why it was transformative for the disciples and what they were about to enter into into the troublesome season that they were going into, and why it should be transformative for us, too, as we begin to walk into trials and difficult seasons as well. First, consider the original eyewitnesses. In all four gospel accounts, it was a woman who first meets the resurrected Christ. The woman was Mary Magdalene, a once demon-possessed prostitute to whom Jesus decided to reveal himself. This is huge, because if these stories were fabricated or manipulated, none of the gospel writers would have chosen to include this detail. Because unfortunately, women were not valued or looked highly upon in this society at all. In fact, a woman's testimony wouldn't even hold up in a court of law. You thought it was bad in America. So if the gospel writers wanted to make a persuasive argument back then, they certainly wouldn't have included this detail in the gospels. And so remarkably, we find Jesus debuting his resurrection body to the most broken of disciples, a demonized prostitute, and to the most unlikely of recipients, at least in that culture, a woman. But also consider the unflattering honesty of the gospel writers. In his 1950 essay, What Are We to Make of Jesus, C.S. Lewis demonstrates how unlikely it would be for the Jews to invent a God become man. He says this, This is difficult because his followers were all Jews. That is, they belonged to the nation which all others uh, was most convinced that there was only one God, that there could not possibly be another God. It is very odd that this horrible invention about a religious leader should grow up among the one people in the whole earth least likely to make such a mistake. On the contrary, we get the impression that none of his immediate followers, or even of the New Testament writers, embraced this doctrine all that easily. Which is why it wasn't until the resurrection that any of them really got serious about following Jesus. It's because prior to the resurrection, that hour that Jesus speaks of here hadn't come yet. Their understanding was yet to be transformed. Jesus wasn't fully legitimized in their minds until the hour of the resurrection. And to add to Lewis, if I may, the Bible is not at all glamorous in its depictions of its central characters and their understanding of the Messiah. The remarkable honesty that the gospel writers exhibit is another reason to believe the resurrection claims. It would have been humiliating to pen the words that they claimed. Mary didn't expect this. Jesus' closest friends, the disciples, didn't expect this. They were actually really poor followers of their master. They didn't understand some of the very straightforward things that he had said. The hour hadn't come. If this whole thing was they, if this whole charade was a clever ruse, why would they make themselves look so foolish and unbelieving in the accounts that they tell? Why make Thomas look so bumbling and doubtful? Why parade the disciples around like morons who can't even understand the plain evidence in front of their faces? Consider something else here, too. Consider the authorities' inability to produce a body. One of the most striking and stubborn historical facts is that the enemies of Jesus and of Christianity could not produce Jesus' body. The quickest way to discredit the Jesus movement back then would have been to produce physical evidence that Jesus was still dead. The Jewish and Roman authorities had all the resources they needed to make this happen. They had all the motivation that they needed to track down the body and deal the fatal blow to the resurrection claims. Finding Jesus' body would have ended the entire debate. But there was no dead body because Jesus was raised. And finally here, consider the willing martyrdom of Jesus' closest friends. And this has the closest sort of application to our text this morning. Consider the willing martyrdom of Jesus' closest friends. This hour that Jesus refers to here spans an eternal chasm for all of us in here. The chasm between belief and unbelief. That hour, the hour of his resurrection, made all the difference for his disciples. It anchored them. Did you know that 10 of the 12 apostles were violently martyred for their faith? That's peace and trouble. What peace is there offered in this life that could possibly enable these men to ride the waves of those storms into their own death? It could only be because they had seen the risen Christ. The hour had come, and their faith had transformed. There's no other logical explanation. And so the resurrection is the center point of our proclamation about Jesus. It is the event that climaxes Jesus' self-revelation to the world. It's historical confirmation that God has invaded time and space and has begun to set things right in the world. And so, what will they come to understand more clearly On the other side of this hour, the hour of Jesus' resurrection. What will be plain for them to understand on the other side of this hour, as verse 25 says? Well, I think it's this First, Jesus alone gets you access to God. After this hour, they knew concretely that it was Jesus alone who got them access to God. Jesus says that once this day comes, they'll ask for Jesus to go to God for them Jesus, can you go to God for us and ask him this one thing? And Jesus is going to say, nah, go yourself. Wasn't this the best feeling as a 16-year-old when you say, hey, Dad, Mom needs you to go to the store to get some milk. Nah, son, I can't go right now. Just go yourself. Wait, really? I can go for you? Yes, okay, I'll be right back. Can I have some money? Um, that's what's happening here. In verse 26, Jesus basically says, in that day after the resurrection, you're going to ask me to go to the Father, but I'm just gonna tell you to go yourself, because the Father himself loves you, Trinity, verse 27, the Father loves you. And Jesus doesn't have to bother him to get his attention for you. The Father himself loves you, because for all of those in Christ, he's applied the work of the Son to you. You get access to the creator of the universe. And do you know how to make the Father love you? We can't do anything to make him love us. But we can adopt a new identity, the identity of Jesus. Verse 27 says, the Father loves you because you believe in me. To believe in Jesus means to believe that he is who he says he is. It means to exchange your righteousness for his. It means to have the Father judge you based on Jesus' performance and not your own performance. Jesus' finished work on the other side of that hour would grant them and us bold access to the throne room of God himself. And so now the disciples here in verse 29 are like, well, why didn't you just say so in the first place? Now we get it. And then down in verse 31, Jesus responds pretty sarcastically, I think. Oh, now you believe, huh? Because guess what, you're all about to show that you don't actually believe yet. You're going to abandon me. You're going to leave me alone in the midst of the darkest night of my life. So in effect, Jesus is saying, are you, are you sure you believe me? Are you sure? Then once again, he projects into the future and it looks really ugly. First, uh, verse 33, I've said these things to you so that you can have peace. Well, when? When does Jesus offer them this peace? Well, it's when this tribulation comes that you see in verse 33, which is still in the future. But there's an anchor for that trial now. Jesus' victory over the world, which he knew was just hours away, his violent death and then his victorious resurrection, Jesus links his overcoming of the world directly with peace in their storm. And he's going to do the same thing for us this morning. He's going to link his overcoming of the world directly with peace for your storm. Second, this morning, Jesus alone grants you peace in your pain. He gets you access to God and he brings you peace in your pain. I think it's interesting that Jesus has the massive audacity to pair pain and peace together. Verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. But take heart, in me there's peace because I have overcome the world. I mean, how does Jesus get away with this, linking these two seeming opposites with a straight face, especially knowing the excruciating torture that was just a couple of hours away for him? Well, I think this should force us to really carefully define this morning what peace actually is. Jesus' peace here cannot mean the absence of all threats and enemies and setbacks and broken hearts. What he must mean is the absence of some kind of debilitating anxiety in the face of threats and enemies and setbacks and broken hearts. It's this resolute trust despite everything falling down around you. Now that is an elusive piece for all of us. It's really hard to wrap our minds around. Now I don't, I don't think my man card is on the line here, but when Miriam and the girls have gone out of state to go visit grandparents or something like that, and I am left at home all alone. There is a deep satisfaction I have in like cleaning the mess out of my house um, for it being just super clean. I'm not sure why I enjoy this, but there's a deep satisfaction in scrubbing a sink or vacuuming a carpet that you know won't be dirty for at least another week. Uh, It looks amazing. I'm peaceful. The house is peaceful. All is right in the world. Drama-free, clean living. That's peace. It's not really peace kind of like counterfeit piece, isn't it? Because when the crew returns and there's four-day-old cereal stuck to the table, that's a personal confession right there, or 17 misplaced Uno cards scattered around the living room, or 46 different kinds of unicorns strewn across the entire house, then what? No more peace, no more clean living. Someone once said that cleaning your house with toddlers is like brushing your teeth with Oreos. My peace in that scenario, my peace in that scenario when the crew is gone is tied directly to my circumstances and experiences. That's actually counterfeit peace. That's not gospel peace. When they're back in town and I blow up at my kids for the mess in the living room, I'm demonstrating that my peace is fueled by order and not by God. But a a peace fueled by order is no peace at all because we live in a world that is upside down and out of order. What Jesus is advertising here is a peace that is completely independent of your circumstances. That is true gospel peace. The peace Jesus is talking about here is a condition that makes the uncertainties and struggles of this, that takes them uncertainty and struggle seriously, but is able to ride them with a deep sense of trust and peace, like that pelican. I'm not sure where you're tempted to pursue and content yourself with counterfeit peace, to just numb your pain, to put a Band-Aid on your soul. But the only place you'll find respite, true respite, even while in a trial, is in Jesus. We ought to circle those two words there in verse 33. It says, In me. In the world you get tribulation, in me you have peace. Jesus doesn't save us from trouble, he saves us in trouble. His peace isn't the absence of trouble, it's deep abiding contentment with him in trouble. That's the way it works in God's providence. And so we must vigilantly remind ourselves that God's purposes and affections for us are not dependent on us, nor are they tied to what we have in this world. We're tempted to tie God's favor uh, toward us with what we have in this world. Do you have much? Do you have little? Neither of those things are indicative of the love that God has for you. Jesus barely had a place to lay his head every single night. He was brutally and unjustly murdered. Were those circumstances in any way reflective of God's lack of love for him? No way. God's love was shown to Jesus in his presence with him in the midst of those trials. This confident hope should balance us as we ride up the swells and down into the valleys. God is with us. We can experience peace and pain because we know who triumphs in the end. Take heart, says Jesus. I have overcome the world. Are you sick? Take heart. Is a loved one dying? Take heart. Is your house a perpetual wreck? Take heart. Can't make your anxious heart stop beating out of your chest? Take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. And in the end, his victory is your victory. Jesus latched onto this reality before he even entered into the most difficult trial of his life. So all of us today, we should latch on hard. Whether you're out in front of a storm right now, or in the midst of one, or there's one in the rearview mirror, latch on to this. The other day, I was watching a video of a few people trying to paint a Bob Ross painting with the same beauty and under the same time constraints that Bob paints with. You can imagine it wasn't a very pretty picture. He makes little quips to the videos like, that right there is a little happy tree, and if yours doesn't look quite like this, it'll be okay. If Bob were to stroll through these doors at the back of the room today and hand you a paintbrush and ask you to paint one of his iconic scenes, and if you were to say, take heart, I did it, you can too." I mean, there would not be much encouragement for most of us in here when he said that to us. Marcos would probably feel pretty good about it, maybe Abby Callie, Kimberly, Rachel, Allison, if you're an artist and I didn't list you, I'm sorry, Maybe some of you guys would feel pretty good about it, but the rest of us would not feel good about it. Cheer up, I did great and you can too. Is just a not so subtle reminder of my inferiority to Bob Ross. You know what I'm saying? In much the same way, if Jesus was just better at life, then Jesus has little value for us. None, in fact. His perfection simply makes us Feel a little bit like Bob handing us a paintbrush and saying, Ah, yeah, you got this. No, you don't. Got this. There's just no way we could ever measure up to Jesus. There is no hope there. His superiority would only serve to make our inferiority that much more discouraging. Because God only accepts perfection of Jesus. There's no way he's gonna accept us. It's discouraging. But Jesus never says, take heart you will overcome the world. Those are not the words that Jesus uses. Instead of, take heart, you can do it, we get verse 33 instead. He says, take heart, I have done it. I have overcome the world. Well, then that changes everything. And here's where we see the cosmic difference between Christianity and any other religion this world has conjured up during its long and storied history. It doesn't only offer an impossibly high standard moral code, which it does, but it also offers the means of achieving it through the work of another. To take the Bob Ross analogy a step further, and maybe too far, Christianity is like Bob painting a masterpiece and then signing your name at the bottom of it. Through the years as it hangs on your wall in a prominent place, people who walk through your home might remark about it, that's beautiful. You have an amazing gift. Just kind of politely nod, say thanks. Instead of handing you the brush, Bob would have done the work and given you all the credit. That's the gospel. Jesus achieves for you what he demands from you and gives you all the benefits as if you had done it yourself. Man, all of hell itself could exhaust its fury on you and you'd survive. Bobbing up, down like that pelican riding out the storm in the peace of Christ because you're in Christ. So the next time you're tempted to fret because of your circumstances, ride down that valley, ride up that swell, riveted to the resurrection power of Jesus who has overcome the world for you. And you know, we know that he will in the end resurrect you with him. Jesus overcame the world to give you peace in your storm. Lean into that this week, Trinity. Lord, thank you. Thank you for Jesus, who is the example, the prime, perfect, beautiful example of what it means to rest in a storm. I pray that you teach us this. Our hearts are absolutely inclined in the opposite direction. We do not tend to lean in storms, but we tend to, uh, to be anxious and to try to fix and to change things. And I pray that, Lord, we would rest in you and your sovereign goodness. Give us peace in our storms by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.